Hello and welcome to the July edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up on this show... I'm John Kay, and I'll be talking to Heritage Champion Ron Finlay about the House of Life Heritage Centre, which opens at Wilsdon Jewish Cemetery. I'm Kate Fulton, and I'll be talking to author Michal Oshman about her book, What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? I'm Tony Honigberg, and I'll be talking to author Janice C. Spector about her book, 2207 South Green Road, a story of the Kotovskis a Jewish family in Cleveland, Ohio, in 1961. As if all of that isn't enough, we'll also have our rabbinic thought for the month, which comes from Rabbi Harvey Belovsky of Golders Green United Synagogue. But before all that, with a roundup of the Jewish news from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. Protesters at a central London demonstration against COVID lockdowns and the vaccine were seen wearing the yellow star of David despite being repeatedly told it abused the memory of the six million murdered in the Holocaust. Thousands attended the rally from which a picture emerged of a man wearing a yellow star which read unvaccinated. The Auschwitz Museum has previously labelled those wearing yellow stars at protests of a moral and intellectual decline. The UK could be getting a new Israeli ambassador after the recent change in government in Jerusalem. The new foreign minister and alternate prime minister, Yair Lapid, is considering replacing Tsipi Hotovli with Yael German, who's a member of his centrist Yesh Atid party. However, some sources within the foreign ministry have apparently said it could be legally impossible. Hotovli has only been in the post for a year. Bristol University has been accused of dragging its feet over its ongoing investigation into controversial Professor David Miller. Miller was condemned across the Jewish community after calling for an end to Zionism and accusing the university's JSOC of being pawns of Israel. The Union of Jewish Students said they were concerned about how long the process was taking, whilst the university claimed it couldn't comment, citing legal reasons. MPs have voiced their concern over the findings of a European Union report into the content of Palestinian school textbooks, which appeared to offer conflicting conclusions. The report by the Georg Eckert Institute found that elements of the Palestinian Authority curriculum promote terrorism, martyrdom and Jew hate. Examples given included the glorification of Dalal al-Mughrabi, who killed 38 Israelis in a terror attack. However, the review also found that the 156 textbooks and 16 teachers' guides it examined adhere to UNESCO standards. Through its foreign aid programme, the UK government funds the salaries of Palestinian teachers who teach from the textbooks in question. The co-founder of the English folk rock band Mumford & Sons, who left the group after getting vitriolic abuse for supporting a conservative journalist, has revealed he lost family members in Nazi concentration camps. Winston Marshall was labelled a fascist by online trolls after tweeting praise for Andy Ngo's book about far-left extremism. Mr Marshall said it was absurd for him to be called a supporter of the far right after his family's experiences. The three remaining members of the band have wished him all the best for the future and said that Marshall was much loved. And finally, good news for those with a sweet tooth. More than 300 new items have been approved in the latest Kosher Nosh Guide for 2021, including M&M's Biscuit and Brownie and Rouse Chocobee Honey. Rabbi Jeremy Conway of the Kosher London Beth Din said, Now, more than ever, we need our Nosh. Viv, thank you very much indeed. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, the House of Life Heritage Visitor Centre at Wilsdon Jewish Cemetery reopens on Monday, the 5th of July. But why would you want to go to a cemetery when you don't have to? Ron Findlay is heritage champion at the Wilsdon Jewish Cemetery. Ron, why is Wilsdon in some ways for the Jewish community so special? The, the cemetery opened in 1873, and it has a wealth of history there that is almost unimaginable. And it has architectural merit, very interesting monuments. And since we've been developing the site, we have soundscapes, we have walking trails, we have nature gardens. So it's much more than a place where there's just a few tombstones. It's really worth a visit. To be fair, when you think of Wilsdon, you don't necessarily think of nature gardens. Does it cover quite a large area? It does. It probably will take you, well, you can spend, you know, several hours there, I would have thought, but to walk all around the site would easily take an hour, I, I guess. And the planting has been, you know, is underway we're definitely making it more and more attractive, but there's already some beautiful avenues of trees. And it's a very tranquil place to come in the middle of busy London town and opposite a bus garage. So uh, you'll be surprised. And there are some pretty notable people who have been buried there. Absolutely. So this is what makes it so fascinating. It's really a microcosm of British Jewry and explains is a very good cross-section of all the Jews who have been buried and lived in, in this part of London over you know, more than a century and a half. So, for example, we have buried there Rosalind Franklin, who was one of the pioneers of DNA. There is Simeon Solomon, who's a, a pre-Raphaelite painter, and even Horace Goldin, who was the man who pioneered cutting women in half on stage. As well as that, you got Jack Cohen, who, of course, was the founder of Tesco, four chief rabbis. Up to what period was Wilsdon Cemetery used? Well, it is still actually in use. There are only now about a dozen burials a year, but it was obviously in its heyday, I suppose, at the end of the 19th century and in the first half of the 20th century. So when you say there's a dozen a year, because most people will be going to one of the largest cemeteries that are on the outskirts of, of London, did they not say at one point, that's it, there's no more room? Or did some people reserve graves well in advance? Yes, that's right. There are reserve plots still there. And that's really the only way that you can, you can, find, you can find a place there these days. And, you know, when Wilsdon Cemetery was first built, it was around the time of the wave of other non-Jewish cemeteries around London. There's so-called Magnificent Seven, which include Highgate and others. And it was on the outskirts of London. But, of course, as the population has grown, so too the cemeteries have been pushed further and further out where there's green space. And, of course, the Jewish community in Wilsdon was, in fact, very large. Then it sort of declined, and it's getting a bit of a revival now, isn't it? Uh, yes. 
But also, let's remember that those who are buried there came from all over London. It was, you know, one of the central places. Yes, although the community perhaps has come back to northwest London, it's obviously very dispersed. But, you know, what you can find there is really how the community saw itself at that time in the early 19th century. And the design of the early part of the cemetery, I think, is very interesting. It's much more like a non-Jewish cemetery than the present-day versions, because at that time, Anglo-Jewry wanted to be Anglicised, wanted to feel, you know, not to have the stigma of being different. And so they very much emulated the architectural and monumental traditions that were prevalent in the non-Jewish world. So even though somewhere like Bushy is massive compared to Wilsdon, you're saying actually it looks very different anyway. Yes, that's right. I mean, I think it will take some time before perhaps crowds are attracted to come to Bushy for, for such heritage purposes. But, you know, Wilsdon, yes, it, it's much more diverse, I think, than you would expect in the way Peers, and also what we've we've done to it. I mean, thanks to national lottery money, over two million pounds, which has been invested over the last two years, we've been able to create a, a heritage centre there as a visitor centre, and you can come in and you can have watch interactive videos and exhibits and a lot of explanation about Jewish burial rites and Jewish rituals. So even if you're not Jewish, I think there's plenty there to interest you. Now, there is something going on there called a death cafe, which sounds pretty depressing and pretty miserable, but actually, in in many ways, it isn't. It's a a discussion centre, really, isn't it? That's right. And we're not the only ones who are doing this. So the death cafe is on the 27th of July. If anyone wants to come along, they can book online. And yeah, I agree with you. I mean, that it sounds, doesn't it? It sounds sort of morbid, but lots of people enjoy being able to confront this and to talk about their experiences of maybe being bereaved or what they want in their futures. And people find it's a really welcoming space to to gather and discuss that topic. Just because it may sound a little morbid, in fact, it's lots of fun. Yeah, I I suppose it sounds more morbid because it's located in a cemetery rather than anywhere else. Yes, but, you know, this is not a forbidding place. And the visitor centre itself is extremely welcoming. But And besides that, you know, we've got other events which people might enjoy. So we've got lots of guided walks, including some on topics of special interest, like World War I, for example. And we have a soundscape. So we have commissioned sound artists who have created all different sorts of noise experiences, audio audio experiences, I guess, as you walk around the grounds. And there's also in the old mortuary an area where you can actually hear some actors who have recreated some of the sounds that would have been heard at the time of burials in the 19th century. So it's really artistic and interesting. Well, it's fascinating, and it's open, the House of Life Visitor Centre, Monday to Thursday in the mornings between 10 and 1, and it's open most of uh, Sunday from 10 till 4. And That's it, right. Do you have to pay to get in? No, it's completely free. You know, donations will be welcome, but it's completely free. And 
you know, especially in the summer now, when you've got nice weather, I really would encourage people to come along and try it out. It's something unusual and different to do in London. Ron Findlay, Heritage Champion, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Michal Oshman has written a book with a fabulous title, What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? Gosh, that seems to be a very apt statement for most parts of most people's lives with huge and important questions. I'm happy to be talking to Michal now. Michal, tell us a bit about your background and your training. Oh, well, that's a lot. Uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it high level. Keep it short then. <laughs> short. I mean, my, my story, I'm uh, 45 year old, years old. I, am, I live in London. I've been living in London for nearly 17 years. I'm originally from Israel, from Tel Aviv. I'm a mother of four children. I'm the head of culture at uh, TikTok EMEA. Before that, I worked for Facebook for nearly seven years. And I am very passionate about organizations and culture and how people feel they belong and uh, they can be themselves in the context of work. So that's kind of my CV. But what I share in the book is what you don't see on people's CVs or, or, or on their LinkedIn, which is what was going on in my internal world as someone that's been suffering from anxiety and mental health challenges most of my life or at least until the age of 38. Those are things that people normally keep inside. And I chose to, to, to share, choose to share in this book because I made a really meaningful discovery that I wanted to share with other people that are also going through struggle. So that was the impetus for your book, was your own, own anxieties and wanting to, to share those. So who did you have in mind when you wrote it? Oh, this is such a good question. I had in mind everyone and anyone that wants to grow. This book is, it's about the Jewish wisdom, but it's not a book that is written only for Jewish people. It's a book that is written for anyone that wants to raise their self-awareness, people that have been trying to help themselves grow and often heal from pain or from challenge, which we all go through. And especially the last 16 months haven't been easy for any of us, but mainly for people that have no, had no awareness or would be really curious to learn that there is a Jewish wisdom that was created, an ancient wisdom thousands of years ago that is designed to heal the soul, to help us you know, feel better about ourselves, about life, about the potential. And often this wisdom isn't considered for psychology or self-help. And I think it should be. Okay, it's probably and not wanting to give away a punchline of the book, but why are we afraid? Why why is it something that we I mean, isn't fear actually sometimes a good thing? You know, we're afraid to cross the road, which is a good thing. We need to consider. And I was just wondering what sort of fear that we should be afraid of. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Some fear is for needed for survival, right? Like, the, you know, the classic kind of tigers chasing you. You're not going to just stand and say, oh, why am I fearing the tiger? And like, what does it represent? No, the tiger is off, you know, to, to get you. And, and, and you will actually, I don't, not sure what the right strategy here, run away or stand still, but like, I'm definitely not an expert there. But the, but the, but the fear that I'm talking about and I write about in the book, hate. that's why the book is called What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid, which was one of Facebook's company mantras internally, and it was all over the walls, is that we fear other things in life. We feel disappointing. We feel failing. We feel, you know, not, not, not achieving or, or not being the people that we could be. And often through that fear, A, we suffer, and B, we don't do. 
because we're afraid to get things wrong. And one of the things that I write about in the book is allowing ourselves to acknowledge the fact that we were never wired to be perfect. When I was brought up as a young girl, the, the messages that I got from my, my surrounding, my family is like, you, I had to be perfect. So every time I got something wrong or I thought there was a risk of getting something wrong, that provoked a lot of anxiety. It didn't help that I was growing up with my grandparents who were Holocaust survivors. And you always, I always had that feeling of like pleasing everyone and just being that, you know, perfect little girl. So that fear of disappointing, of not fulfilling my potential, you know, caused me for emotional pain as well as other things. And when I talk about what would you do if you weren't afraid, it's mainly what would you do if you weren't afraid of failing? Like what's the worst that can happen? And I'm trying to encourage and empower ourselves to know that we were designed to also make mistakes. That's the only way to grow. You say that the book is based on Torah ideas. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah. So one of the basic, I guess, fundamentals connected to that it's Torah-based is that we all have a soul. We all have a godly soul that is arriving to this world, not by chance, not just because you know it happened to be nine months after you know a certain event. It's 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 because it's because you you were needed here. And I really like one of the Hasidic saying, which is the day you were born was the day that the world was missing you, specifically you, Kate, and each of the people that are listening to us today. So that brings a lot of purpose, a lot of meaning, right? I am here to do something meaningful. And often because life is so much and it's so overwhelming and we're trying to be so many things or so many people to different parts of you know life that we have, we often don't take a minute and we, we don't ask ourselves. And it's a big question to ask. What am I here to do? Not not my parents want me to do or what I think will look awesome on my, you know, LinkedIn profile, but what what's what that special sauce that I have? What is my soul? Who, you know, and 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 then how can I bring it to life? How can I how can I let it grow and, and evolve? So that's the basic, you know, fundamental principle of from the Torah that we all have, you know, we're all coming from the breath of, of Hashem, of, of God. Therefore, we're all carrying godly souls, which is a completely new perspective of life, at least that I that I had. And again, that nothing is random, random. So the family that you were born into, that was the right family for you, even if it wasn't easy, even though, and every family has tension. So it's a different perspective. It's about less blaming and more going forward in life and trying to overcome challenge by actually taking action. So one of the things, you know, I know we're not going to go too deep in Torah now, but one of the things that I love about about the kind of like one of the fundamental principles in in I guess the Jewish identity or Jewish culture is is moving forward is like crossing the narrow bridge. I think we many of us know the the song The whole entire world is a very narrow bridge and the most important thing is to have no fear at all. And it's that crossing our bridges. And I think today, because we want so many assurances and reassurances, everything is going to be just the way we want it to be. Life doesn't work that way. Sometimes you have to date that person, even if he's not 100% your partner. Or you have to apply to that role, to that job, even if you don't have 100%, you know, but just kind of doing and growing. And, you know, these are quite basic examples. Sometimes we have to also let go to be able to cross on the bridge. And these are very much, you know, they're also universal uh, principles, but very much Jewish principles. And I bring them to life in the book. And I say that I believe that this is an effective way to live and to parent and to be a partner and to be a leader at work. These principles are just valid in every life department from, from my own discovery.
that's that's beautiful. The problem that the, the problems I see sometimes or that you hear is that we we do live in society where where you mentioned TikTok and Facebook, which are ephemeral, which are shallow often, which are all about the the exterior and not enough about the interior. And then we are afraid of being judged and what other people think. Is that not realistic given these types of immersive societies in which we find ourselves? Well, I, I see in, you know, you're talking about, I guess, social media, but I, I see in every structure that we have in, in life, there's always like great things and less great things. So I actually personally consume my Jewish wisdom studies on social media. And I don't know if I would be able to learn so much without the webinars and without the Zooms and without the, you know, Facebook groups, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think like anything, there's like how we consume it and, 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 and what we get out of it. I actually think that more than ever, we need to find a balance, as you said, about these feelings that could evoke. But, but Kate, people have always felt certain difficult feelings. I, mean, I know that often like it seems like we have been suffering from these things only recently or just since Freud. But it was way before Freud that people felt fear that people felt anxious, that people felt jealous, that people felt despair. So, you know, we were we were wired to be able to deal with these feelings and actually look at these feelings as a signal of potentially, maybe we're not living the life that we want to be living. So my, my point of view is, what can we learn from the Jewish wisdom, which is designed to be able for humans to navigate life, right? What is Torah all about? It's a book. Well, there's a lot about the Torah and I'm definitely not an expert, but I see the Torah as a way to, as a guidebook to help me, let's say, navigate my life through the different challenges and opportunities that I go through. So the way I look at this, this too, this phase that we're going through, these times today with social media and all sorts of things and COVID and all the things that we experience as a society, how can we take the basics, the learnings from the Torah and ancient wisdom and apply them today when it's relevant and when it helps us navigate life. And I found really key principles that help navigate through some of these challenges. And it's, it's truly effective. If you were to ask people to take one thing home from reading your book, I'm sure there's lots, what would it be? Just one thing. I think one thing is taking, I mean, so many things as a pretty completely running here uh, on the spot. I, I think I think for one immediate thought is that A, we are supposed to live with joy, with simcha. The word in Hebrew for joy is simcha. And I for many, many years thought that because there's so much difficulty in the world and post-Holocaust, that actually life wasn't supposed to be lived with joy. And discovering that even through the difficult times when we're low, it only can go up. And, and one of our jobs here in this world is how to live life in a purposeful, meaningful, you know, joyful way is, is for me a huge message that I took away. And I know these are difficult times for many communities and for re different reasons. So how can we navigate through challenge and still keep our, our joy and, and positivity? Not an easy task, but one that is really worth trying. We shall do that. The book is called, What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? And we've been hearing about it from the author herself, Michal Oshman. Michal, thank you very much. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. My guest this month is author Janice C. Spector, and we'll be talking about her book, 2207 South Green Road, 
Before we talk about your book, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you became an author. Okay, well, I was born in University Heights, Ohio, and 2207 South Green Road is the house I grew up in. So it's a real place. I left Ohio after college. I went to New York. I did a stint at the New York Times. I got married, and my husband and I then moved to the Washington, D.C. area. Most of my career was spent in public relations and politics. And now that I'm in retirement, I've decided that someday that comes for some people to start writing books has come for me. And so I spend my time writing and playing with my grandchildren. The book set in Cleveland, Ohio, which you just said is where you were brought up in the house or the number of the house you were brought up in, set in 1961. And it focuses on a Jewish family called the Kotovskis. Yes. And this story is told through the eyes of 10-year-old Edna. Yes. The granddaughter of Becky and Morris. But before we go into the story itself, what influenced the story? I think that I've always wanted to write about them. When I, I went to college in New York, you know, you grow up, and this is a huge extended Jewish immigrant family, and the house was always full of people. I was never really left alone, my great aunts and uncles, my grandparents. And you grow up in a situation that seems normal to you, and then you go out into the quote-unquote real world, and I realized that this family was anything but normal. I mean, they were just a little bit crazy. I loved them, but their day-to-day existence was not like anything I experienced, you know, when I got out into the real world. So, you know, I started a career in writing and said I'd always write about them someday. In particular, in this very complicated childhood, there were two shining lights, and that was my grandfather, Morris, whom I absolutely adored, and my great-aunt, Celia, who I absolutely adored, who tried to mitigate all the craziness that went on in Ohio, but I grew up in this Jewish bubble, not really knowing anybody else who wasn't Jewish until I landed in New York. And so, you know, again, I thought that their story was important to be told, particularly that of my grandfather, because I think as important as he was to me, He was a very, very unimportant man to a lot of other people, but he had a fascinating background being a Jewish immigrant. He loved me dearly. He spoke very, very little English up until the day that he died, and it was important to me because I never got a chance to say goodbye to him in the real world, to be able to capture him in a storyline that told people who he was. So... Is Edna based on yourself? Yes. You you are Edna. Well, I'm not totally Edna. You know, I have a cousin who was the son of one of the characters who I let read the entire manuscript because I had to decide as an author, well, you know, am I going to write a memoir or am I going to write a fictionalized version? And I decided the best way to tell their story from Edna's perspective is to create a storyline of things that did happen and things that might have happened given their personality. They are perfectly capable of having done all the things in the book. But I had a cousin 
review it to make sure that I captured them as they were. And he said that I did. But I told him that I don't want people to think that I'm totally Edna, only to find out yesterday on his Facebook page, he's so excited about the book, he's told all his friends I'm Edna. So yes, I'm Edna. <laughs> you are now Edna, I'm not Janice. Edna. I'm officially Edna, <laughs> yes. Uh, what about the other characters? Did you portray them as your relatives, or did you have a little bit of artistic license in there as well? There was a little bit of artistic license. Some of them are a combination of people, but most of the stories are true. They happened the way I said they happened. In particularly, my grandfather, who had a fascinating story because he came from Russia in his early 20s, unlike my grandmother, who was here as a very, very young woman. But Pretty much the frenetic pace in the book was how I lived my life. Someone who has read the book already said, what a roller coaster. I said, yes, it never stopped. The phone started ringing first thing in the morning, everybody wanting to know where everybody was, how they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. And the pace just never slowed down. So I could tell you about them each individually because they all have very real and very fascinating stories. But collectively, they are what they are in the book, basically. Yes, they are what they are what they are. They were not educated with the exception of my Aunt Celia. She was the only one who was born in this country. They didn't have the benefit of a formal education. I remember growing up that my grandfather, Morris, he was so proud to be an American citizen, all I heard growing up that the greatest thing about the United States of America, and that's what he would call it, he would never say America, he'd say, I am in the United States of America, was that you could get an education. And that was the most important thing in the world to him, that I would someday have an education. And he went back to Russia at one point because he had a sister in the country who could not get out. The, the Russians would not let her leave the country because her daughter was a scientist. He went and he came back. And when he got off the plane, he actually kissed the tarmac at the airport. He never wanted to go back to Russia again. So it's a very accurate portrayal of him. He spoke very little English. What English he knew, he knew from watching childhood television shows with me. He would respond to things by saying, like, no cowabunga from the Howie Doody show. Nobody knew what it meant. You know, if they asked him something and he was excited, he'd scream, hey, Mabel, black label, Carling's black label beer. You know? <laughs> as, as you said in the book. This is exactly yes, what you yes, that's exactly what he was like. You know, so I I think that although some of the personalities morphed a little bit, this is exactly who these people were. And it was important for me to show people that, no, they weren't educated. They didn't have formal educations. My grandmother's problems might have been, in today's world, dealt with much differently. But this was 1960, mm. and nobody knew what to do with a little old Jewish lady who had tremendous substance abuse problems. They didn't want to deal with it, so they just medicated her. Yeah. So had it happened today, she might have had a different life, but it didn't, and she did not.
In the book, you talk about your Friday nights where all of your grandmother's family came over every Friday night and you never went to them, really. They all came to you because your grandmother did all the cooking. Yes. Well, you know, she was the matriarch of this family, for better or for worse, and they used to all crowd together in this tiny house. It would be Friday nights and it would be Saturday nights. They weren't particularly observant, except for a couple members of the family. They just wanted to get together and have a party and have a good time. I would escape because, as the book tells you, I had a very dysfunctional and happy relationship with my own parents, so I would come downstairs to be with them. Otherwise, I was mostly upstairs hiding in a cubbyhole, playing with paper dolls or eating cupcakes or things like that. But they were my escape this family. And I loved them dearly. It was only until, as I said, I left home, I realized that not everybody's family behaved this way. (laughs) I must ask one question. Were you that pudgy little girl? I was that pudgy little girl. But when I went to college, I lost 65 pounds and I became a thinner dysfunctional person. So, you know, it all worked out in the end. You mentioned that other families didn't have that same dysfunctional plethora, if you like, of emotions and celebrations and everything else. But funnily enough, it reminds me very much of some Jewish families that I have came across in the UK uh, that had similar sort of problems. And maybe because they were also immigrants. I think it was pre-1961 these families came over. So, I mean, my grandmother, for instance, on my mother's side, came to the UK in 1898 or something like that. So that was quite early on. That was from pogroms rather than the war years. But these relatives of mine also had similar problems. Right. Because I think of their early background back in Lithuania and Latvia and Ukraine and all those places. So although maybe you couldn't see it there, there were other families. Well, yes. And I was talking to someone last night who's read the book who came from a large Italian family Hmm. and said who had been immigrants. And he said they weren't Jewish, but I recognize these people. These were my aunts and uncles. Yes. Many of them had the same behavioral patterns. It's very sad. In Cleveland, I'm told, they're all buried together, the great aunts and uncles. And I'm told that that part of the cemetery by the family is called the poker game. Because that's what they got together and played. That's right. That's right. I mean, maybe they're still playing. Who knows, Mm -hmm. right? But that's where they're all buried together. But it was also sort of a sad time in speaking to other people, particularly about my grandmother's abuse of narcotics. First of all, there were drugs then that were given to me as a child that you can't get anymore because they're opiates. Yes. You know, it was easily dispensed, the drug paragoric. I remember being given it as a child. I think perhaps they only sell it in a few countries now. Now, at one point, it was banned in the United States. Mm -hmm. But I remember speaking to other people who said, oh, yes, my grandmother had that problem. She suffered from depression. And, of course, nobody wanted to talk to her about it, but they gave her drugs. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that paragoric that you talk about reminds me of a thing you could buy in England over the counter, which was called kaolin and morphine. It was a drug, anyway, to settle the stomach. Right. It had like a white powdery stuff in a clear liquid. You shook it up and you took a spoonful of it and it settled everything down. But it was definitely an opiate. 
Yes, it worked almost immediately. It smelled like licorice. I yeah. remember being yep. given it. If you were sick, you took a swig of paragoric, and there you were. You were fine. Yes, but probably. you were high, true. probably. That's, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, it 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 did the trick. But her big problem, as the book depicts, is that she drove one poor clinician so crazy that he would just come to the house mm. to medicate her with shots of Demerol several times a week. And then, very sadly, her personality morphed into the personality of a drug addict. Yeah. yeah. Anything to get the drugs. There were things about them that I didn't know till after I'd written the book. A family member told me that after her death, my grandmother had thousands of dollars of outstanding hospital bills in Cleveland that she never paid. Goodness. Yes, wow. from just all the trips to the emergency room. There were other members of the family who have read the book and said, I never knew she had a drug problem. I said, well, they tried to keep it a secret, yeah. you know, some of them. So, you know, it was really a very, very sad thing, but it was what it was. As you say, these days, they probably deal with it slightly better. And I'm not sure they would deal with it totally the right way today. It might be slightly better, but I think there would still be the problems. I think the saddest part was, is that particularly my, my aunt, Celia, my great aunt, who I just adored, she tried to help, but she didn't know what to do. It says in the book, you ended up going to live with your aunt. Yes. Is that actually what happened? No, it's not what happened. And the way I wrote the ending was that her son, because she was the youngest of all my great aunts and uncles. So she had a son, mm. two sons. I only talked about the one daughter, yeah. Rosalie, yeah. because Rosalie was the sad part of her life. But her son is my age. We're contemporaries. And as I was finishing the book, I wasn't sure how I was going to end the book. And we were talking about the family, how crazy it was. And all of a sudden, he looked at me and said, you know, my mother always wanted to get you out of that house. She wanted to take you to come live with her. I said, really? I said, you're telling me this 50 years later? <laughs> yes. He said, yes. And I thought you knew. He said, no, she couldn't figure out a way. They would have let her do that. And unbeknownst to him, I went home and I wrote the ending of the book. Fabulous. I'm not going to give any more away because no, obviously no. you would like people to buy it. Right. I must say, I read it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And well, thank as you. I mentioned earlier, it did remind me of a few of our own relatives, families of other friends that I know as well. Uh, so it is very Jewish, if you like. Yes. And, you know, when I went off to college in New York, as I said, I grew up in this Jewish bubble. And so, you know, you're in college and you're branching out. And by this time, I was a young woman and I had lost all the weight and I was nice looking and dating and everything. So I get invited to a picnic at Bear Mountain and they tell me to bring the wine and it comes time to bring out the wine and I pull out a bottle of Manischewitz <laughs> and they look at me like what planet did you come from and I was upset I said you told me to bring the wine <laughs> They didn't. The they wine. didn't mean kiddish wine. They meant right. wine, wine. Yes. Right, but that was the only wine <laughs> that, you that knew. I I knew because that that's the only thing that I was uh, exposed to. Again, the same over here. Exactly the same. It was only the kiddish wine, and at functions there would be sweet dessert wine. Everybody right. wanted sweet wine for some reason, and nobody could understand it. Well, I couldn't understand it because I grew up in a different era, but right. the older people would always want the sweet one. And they would always eat and eat and eat. 
The older ones would eat everything on the plate of every course that came out, and there must have been five or six courses. And they were all big, of course. Obese is the word now, isn't it? Obese. Right. Well, we joke about that in the family, you know, now that that's how we used to eat. And certainly it wasn't healthy to my mind. The only liquor I do drink is port. So obviously some of the Manischewa lingered on after the years. One of the characters in the book that's the most interesting is a character of Ira, who is an absolutely real person, came to live with my aunt. And the fascinating story about Ira, which is true, that is not addressed in the book, is that because my aunt took her in and gave her an education, Ira went on to become a surgical nurse. She not only went on to become a surgical nurse, she headed the most prominent Nurses Association in the state of Ohio, married a very wealthy man, lived in Pepper Pike, Ohio, and named her only son after my uncle. And so this was an absolute true story. This disheveled little girl on my aunt's doorstep was taken in and became a member of the family. It just goes to show you that, is it nature or nurture? It must be nurture, mustn't it, that forms people, rather than just nature, rather than just being born, you know, and what you inherit from your parents by being born to a family. It's the nurture, it's the upbringing and everything else that forms you. Right. Well, you know, aside from the craziness and aside from, sadly, the dysfunction that I experienced with my own parents, they were kind people in their own way. They thought they were, you know, doing the right thing. The right thing they did. I was completely distraught when my grandmother died because I only remembered the good things. She was my grandma. I mean, all the running around and the in and out of hospitals and things like that. I had an idea that was going on. But what do you really know about that as a child? She's home today. She's in the hospital yesterday. What does it all mean? And then, of course, as an adult, you find out what really happened. But I loved her. They, they took care of me. Don't give any more away. I won't. We want people to go out and buy it. And I have looked up and checked and you can buy it in the UK. It's available at most major booksellers, both online and in store. So if people Google the name of your book, they will see where it's available. Yes. All good booksellers. But I understand you're writing another book now. Yes. The interesting thing with my own grandchildren, who are nine and five years old, is Having good childhoods, not particularly dysfunctional, I'm proud to say that my son and daughter-in-law are very normal functioning parents, I see how different their childhood is compared to mine. And I have, I would call it a privilege of being able to not only interact with them, but basically somehow be the child I was never allowed to be. Yes. And so I'm a damaged person because of the childhood. They are somewhat damaged as little people having lived through this pandemic, which was very, very difficult for them. But they're wonderful and vivacious, and I'm very lucky to be able to see the difference, see how they react to things, you know, see what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do because they grew up in a much healthier atmosphere. My best story about the manuscript was that it was sitting on my desk and my grandson saw it, and he was so matter-of-fact about it. He said, would you look at that? Grandma wrote a book. 
<laughs> Sweet. <laughs> right. And then an advanced copy was in my son's apartment and it disappeared. And it was discovered that my grandson had taken it and put it on his bookshelf. And when my son asked him why, he said, because my grandma wrote this book. Oh, isn't that yes. so gorgeous? Yes, it is gorgeous. And so the book is going to, at least the second one, explore the difference, how you react to seeing how they react mm -hmm. now that they have normal experiences and, and address really what the past year was like for them. They weathered it well as very mature nine and five-year-olds, yes. but it still made a difference in their lives. Do you find that your grandchildren at that age are more mature than I'm going to say you and I were at that age because I, I, I look with my own grandchildren and they are so much more mature. Well, they had to be, didn't they? I mean, they're in a world where they had to wear masks and they couldn't go out. But even before that, I found my grandchildren much more mature than I was at the same age. I think that's right. I think that maybe more sophisticated because mm. they're exposed to more in a very matter-of-fact way. I mean, they watch the news, something yes. I don't think I really did as a little kid, because why would you watch the news? There was so much going on in the house. You know, that was the news. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they're just very, very worldly when it comes to all things, even politics. So it's just, it's a different experience and I'm happy for them, but I also feel privileged to be able to experience it. Absolutely. Well, when your next book does come out, please come back and talk to us again about that book. We would love to hear from you. Well, thank you. I would love that. And thank you for giving me the time today. Thank you very much, Janice. It was lovely to talk to you. Thanks okay, a lot. Okay, thank you. This is The Jewish Views in association with JW3. And now it's time for our Rabbinic Thought for the Month, which comes courtesy of Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. In this period, we are reading the book of Bamidbar, that's Numbers, and it tells the story of the life of the Israelites in the desert. There aren't really any laws, and any laws that appear are really confined to the period of the desert. The book governs how they traveled, the formation, their tribes, and then some history, which is not always very favorable, how they complained, how they fought with each other, how they rebelled, and how in the middle of the book, we see that they were condemned to live out their lives in the desert and only the next generation would enter the land despite the promise. And so while most of the stops they make are not actually recorded in any detail, just by name right at the end of the book, it's a story of wanderings. It's a book which is really about roles rather than rules. By which I mean that we kind of see how individuals can work within a functional society, how individuals can be part of a family and the family is part of a tribe and the tribe is part of a cabin, a flag encampment, look near the beginning of the book in the second chapter, and how those flag encampments form part of a people. It's about how you balance our individual needs for spiritual development, personal expression, and commitment to a family or larger group, to a people and to humanity, and how we balance those things. Very near the beginning of the book, there are some very, very long numbers, and that's probably why the book is called that, long lists of the tribes, how many people were in each tribe, and reconfigured in various ways. And sometimes we might wonder what all that information is required for. That's where the roles come in. Because it's intended to teach us that it's possible to create a functional society with a very clear communal direction, 
but nonetheless preserving some kind of individual integrity without submerging the individual to the group. And in fact, a Midrash, a rabbinic legend, explains how when God descended on Mount Sinai, he was surrounded by a retinue of angels, all in a particular formation, each with their own worldview, each with their own job, but yet somehow functioning together. And the Israelites said, we like the look of that. And God said, that can be replicated. The purpose of the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, is not to teach us laws. As I said, there are almost no laws in it that survive the desert period, but to teach us about how it's possible to live in a particular formation in a community as part of the human race while preserving our integrity. And the complaints demonstrate when that goes wrong. So they complain about the manner, they complain about the land, they complain about the leadership. It's good to see nothing very much changes. But how those complaints are processed and dealt with, how God teaches Moshe and Aaron, the leaders, to respond, and how eventually Moshe and Aaron themselves learn that they will not survive the desert era but be replaced by other leaders who are more suitable for the land, is what the book's about. It's about leadership, it's about community, and it's about the preservation and promotion of the delicate balance between the individual and the life of the community. Thank you very much to Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to all of our guests. And of course, thank you to you at home for listening. Don't forget that you could always listen to this edition or any previous edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3. From me, Phil Dave, and the whole team, that's Kate Fulton, Tony Honickberg, John Kay, and Clive Roslin, we hope that you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.